We're at the end here, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the challenges that first-time parents have, and also those of us who are parents but were very much out of practice with the newborn stage, it's, it's figuring out how to hold the newborn. Uh, the first time a parent tries to do that, they find out that they're very floppy, they, they don't have much structure to them. They just tend to flop every which way. And that's how I am now when somebody will hand me their newborn, even though I had the experience before, now I'm very confused. There's not much structure to, to the infant, and they, they, they need help to be held up, and they just seem to go in every direction. That's actually kind of how I felt uh, looking at this last section of Thessalonians. Because here we have some 20 or so rapid-fire instructions. And to figure out the structure here, how this holds itself up, it seems to kind of flop all over the place. And how do you preach on these things when they, when they seem to be going in lots of different directions? We saw the first section of those, or the first couple section last week, of those instructions. And now we get the rest of them. And uh, this is a challenge when, when ending Paul's letters, but particularly here in Thessalonians where there are uh, a, a couple dozen almost of these various instructions. But at the risk, at the risk of imposing an artificial structure, I think we can see that there are three different ideas, three different sections. Some of the instructions have to do with speaking. The first ones have to do with speaking. The next instructions have to do with listening. And the other instructions, the final ones, have to do with growing. Now, in some ways, they all have to do with growing, and so that might be a little bit artificial. But, but the first ones have to do with speaking, things we do by speech. Others have to do when others are speaking to us. And then the last ones are ways in which we grow as Christians. So the speaking. You have probably heard this section, probably more than other sections of First Thessalonians, these three rapid-fire, very short instructions, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, I have tended to extract these from the context and apply them to individual Christians. In fact, if you go back in the archives, the very first sermon of the year was on three, these three verses. And the focus that I gave them was, as individuals, in this year, what do we need to do? We need to practice rejoicing always. We need to practice prayer in our private lives. And we need to 
get into the habit of giving thanks always. And certainly that's true, but then looking at it in this series, I realized that this is actually instruction not just for individual Christians, but this is instruction for the church. When we gather together, what should we do as we gather together? And there is there's the command here, the instruction, that when you join together, when you gather together, you are to focus on rejoicing always. You are to dedicate yourselves to praying without ceasing. You are to gather to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it, it may surprise us, the first one of these, more than the others. Pray without ceasing, we hear that throughout Scripture, the, the, the command to pray, the urge to pray. Give thanks in all circumstances, we hear that sort of thing as well. And some of the translations say at all times, others say in all circumstances, it amounts to the same thing. Not necessarily giving thanks for the circumstances. There are many things for which we don't give thanks. But in all circumstances, we always have reason to give thanks. But the first one, command to rejoice. Command to rejoice. An instruction to rejoice. Oftentimes we think about rejoicing as something that happens to us. Or joy as something that that comes upon us because our circumstances are good. And certainly that's true. Uh, Favorable circumstances, what do they naturally produce in us? They produce happiness, they produce cheerfulness, they produce joy. Certainly that's true, but this is a, an instruction. This is a, a habit. This is a practice that we need to develop as Christians, and particularly in this context, when we come together. And it's interesting how these three things support each other. Um, what do you do when you're rejoicing in the Lord? What is a, what is a, a natural thing to do when, you re, when you're rejoicing in the Lord? To pray and to to, to direct your, your words to God. If you're joyful in the Lord, it's a very natural thing to pray. And it's also very natural to pray in what way? Giving thanks uh, for the, whatever it is about the Lord's goodness to you that is causing you to rejoice. So, these, so prayer and thanksgiving, they flow out of joy, but it also wraps back around, doesn't it? When we're not in a joyful mood in our lives, when we're having trouble rejoicing in the Lord, and simply out of, out of custom or out of habit or out of practice, we, we dedicate ourselves uh, to prayer and particularly to corporate prayer. And, and we, we reflect upon the things that, that God has done for us and we get, begin speaking thanksgiving to God. Then we find it does what for us? It increases our joy. And so here we find how we're in a, we're in a positive loop here if we can get ourselves into this loop as a church and as, a, uh, as individuals. Joy leads to prayer and thanksgiving, and praying and giving thanks lead to joy. And that's a train that I want to be on that keeps going around and around and around. Joy leading to prayer and thanksgiving, and prayer and thanksgiving leading to joy. And another way to say it is that prayer and thanksgiving express and increase our joy. And it says here very clearly, this is God's will for you. What's God's will for you? That you be joyful, that you pray, that you give thanks as a church and as Christians. And this is interesting. This is the second time he's told us. This is one of those great, great verses that are so helpful when people come to you and say, I just, I'm really looking for God's will for my life. And you can say, I got it. I I can tell you what God's will for your life is. It's right here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. And if you want more, you can go back to chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, your growth and holiness. There you go. That gives you plenty to do, doesn't it, with the rest of your life. What is God's will for you? Your growth and holiness, your sanctification, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances at all times. There you go. That's God's will for you. Simple enough. Now, like all churches, we need to make room for, encourage, and sustain these practices. They're they're not necessarily easy to sustain. And, uh, for example, in our church, before... Uh, before the pandemic, we had a very vibrant monthly prayer meeting. And it's actually one of the best prayer meetings that I've ever participated in. And we met at somebody's house. Uh, A number of people fasted that day. It was on Mondays, fasted. And then at the end of the prayer meeting, we would break the fast together and have some food together. And it was a really vibrant prayer meeting, one one of the best ones I've ever been in. I've been in some pretty dull prayer meetings, but this was not one of them. This was a, this was a kind of an exciting prayer meeting. And then, then of course, the, the pandemic hit, and we were, we were trying to figure that all out. And so we moved it online. And at the beginning of that, it was really vibrant as well, even though the awkwardness of the Zoom and so on, it was still a vibrant prayer meeting. But then I get it. We all got tired of that. That format is where nobody wants another Zoom meeting at this point. And so, so that, that diminished. And so now where are we as a church? Trying to figure out how to pray together again. So we're trying to, we're trying to ramp back up in terms of prayer. We have a women's uh, prayer ministry where each month the women uh, trade uh, the prayer partner and you have a different prayer partner every month and, and you pray for each other during the month and maybe pray together if you can or on the phone. So if you're interested in that, the women, uh, that, that's an opportunity for prayer together. Uh, we also, uh, 9.30 on Sunday mornings, if you just w- can come early in that room back there where we have, uh, have the kids, uh, the little ones during the sermon, there's, there's a prayer meeting that starts at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. A few are gathering, and, and that's a convenient time if you can come early to pray together. As I mentioned in the announcements, we're going to meet here on June 13th, Tuesday evening, to, to pray together. And so we, we need to figure out, I mean, this is something that, that needs to be sustained, and uh, it's God's will for us. What's God's will for Florida Coast Church? It's, it's that we rejoice, that we pray, and that we give thanks. So let's, let's work on figuring out how we can be that, that kind of a church, a rejoicing church, a praying church, a thankful church. And, and really, that, that, describes, that describes an effect that our gathering together should have. Uh, when we leave this place, I'm not saying every time, I don't want to place a burden on us that every time we need to have this experience, but in general, Gathering together, we should be able to go away from gathering together and say, it was good to be together. My, my joy is, is, is at a higher level now than when I entered this place because I, I was reminded once again of all the many reasons, reasons that I have for rejoicing in the Lord. That's the, that's the speaking section. Joy leading to prayer, leading to thanksgiving, and circling back on joy. And then the listening section in verses 19 to 22 Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, the Holy Spirit is associated with fire, with fire. Do you remember John the Baptist? He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And then at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, the church, the, the visible manifestation were tongues of 
fire. And so the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's interesting that, that this verb is used. It's an appropriate verb. Because what is it that is quenched? Well, we think about fire being quenched. And so it's a, this verb is very appropriate. Do not quench the Spirit. Because he is a person, the Holy Spirit, it's also possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Because he is a person, he is God. It's also possible to resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And because he is God, because he is a person, it's also possible to lie to the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. So don't quench, don't grieve, don't resist, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. In this case, the, the focus is don't despise prophecies. And so uh, don't quench the Spirit by despising prophecies. Now, it's always difficult when we have to kind of back engineer the instructions. What was going on in the Thessalonian church that the authors had to say don't despise prophecies? It looks like if we could contrast this with the, the Corinthian church, in the Corinthian church, the prophets were out of control. And, and, and they were, the church was in danger of just kind of accepting anything that was coming their way uh, under the guise of prophecy or the guise of the word from the Holy Spirit. It looks like that was the situation in Corinthians. It looks like here the opposite. There may have been a tendency to reject everything out of hand. Uh, so one church maybe as much as we can tell, was kind of accepting uncritically too much. And this church perhaps was, was not open enough. It's, it's not clear, but we're trying to read between the lines here. And then what is the attitude that, that is given here? It says, do not despise prophecies, but... And the rest of this sometimes is taken out of context and applied generally. And it's not a bad general application, but the, the application here is to prophecy, a word that purports to be from the Lord. Verse 21, test it. Test everything. Test every prophecy in this context. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And it, that, that hold fast to, to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's a, that's a good general instruction, but here it's focused on a word that purports to be from the Lord. Test it. If there's anything good in it, hold on to that. If there's something evil in that, stay away from it. Now, um, we immediately run into a difficulty here in defining prophecy because the New Testament never defines prophecy. Um, we find prophets in the Old Testament. We find prophets in the New Testament church. Um, it's, it's also a challenge to figure out what that might look like today because if you read through Scripture, we find that prophets are an occasional phenomenon. They are bunched together. Um, they, the, the, the phenomenon of prophecy is not something that happened all through the history of Israel and all through the history of the church. They, they seem to be bunched together at critical times in the life of the church. And along with those times, we find miracles, we find people being raised from the dead, things that are, are out of the ordinary even in the Old Testament times. And so when we look at what we find, which is, is not a, a great deal of information, but if you look at in Ephesians, the situation of prophets, we find that these prophets of the New Testament were associated with the apostles, associated with the apostles in a foundational ministry. Something new was happening. And what was that new thing that was happening? Jesus came. 
and the gospel was going out to the nation. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, So then, you Gentile Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So who's the foundational? Who are the foundational ministers here? They're apostles and prophets. And then if you, same book, Ephesians 3, 5, it says, the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And what's the mystery? It's, it's, it's Jesus is the, the mystery he, the, uh, that he's for the nations and what he was going to do for the nations and include the nations. The mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so what do we have here? We have a a new thing that God is doing, a mystery revealed, and we have special ministers, apostles, and prophets to bring that foundational message to to bear. And so it looks like the apostles and prophets were the ones who were there to, to reveal this new thing that God was doing. And thanks be to God, we have a prophetic work that is a result of their ministry. We have a prophetic book that is a result of their ministry. There were, there were preaching prophets and there were some writing prophets as well in the Old Testament. And what we have in the New Testament, we have the last and the greatest prophetic book that's ever been written because the, the prophets and the apostles of the New Testament era, some of them wrote things down for our edification. And so one simple application of this, this instruction not to despise prophecy is don't despise the New Testament. Honor the New Testament. This is the greatest prophetic work that the world has ever seen. And so honor that. Honor that because God is speaking to us in it. Now, having said that, that, that prophets and apostles were foundational ministries, always, constantly, there are words that are being spoken purporting to be from God. And this instruction that we have in 1 Thessalonians helps us to to know how to receive or reject those words that purport to be from God. Every time someone like me stands up and preaches, we are declaring the word of the Lord. And and at various levels, uh, in different interactions, there are these, these messages that purport to be from God. So how should we deal with those? It says, well, we should test them. But what tests do we apply? And it doesn't say here what tests to apply. But, and here's where I have a number of verses, and they're in the sheet, and you can look these up later. I'll refer to some of them. There are tests throughout Scripture of whether a word is really from the Lord or not, whether a a word is really a a prophecy that comes from the Spirit or, or it's not, if it's something that we should accept or we should reject. And here are, uh, let's see, I guess eight, uh, seven or eight different tests that you can apply. The first one is if, and by the way, much prophecy, most of prophecy isn't telling the future, but there is a genre of prophecy that is about the future. Usually we think about prophecy as foretelling the future. Most prophets are, are, are not foretelling the future. But if there is prediction involved, it's gotta come true. If that's a real prophet, it's got to come true. If it's not true, it doesn't come true, that's not a real prophet. Uh, that's in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 22. 
Uh, that's, that's one from the Old Testament. If it doesn't come true, then don't fear that person. It's, he's not a real prophet. The second one is it has to agree with a deep understanding of Scripture. Uh, the neighbors of the, the, uh, the Thessalonians were the Bereans. And when, when Paul and the other ministers went to Berea to preach the gospel, it, it says in, in verse 11 that the Jews were no, more noble, those in Berea, than those in Thessalonica. Now, uh, the Jews in, in Thessalonica, they organized against the missionaries, but, but some accepted the gospel. It's talking about those who rejected the gospel. It says, they, that is the Jews in Berea, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so that's something you need to be able to do. When a word comes to you from whatever source, you need to know the scriptures or you are easy prey for any sort of message that's out there. You need to know the scriptures to know whether what's being said is in agreement with the totality of scriptures or not. So that's the other test. The first, if it's prediction, does it come true? The second, uh, is it in agreement with a deep understanding of the scriptures? Now, in, in the, uh, the New Testament also, we find that if a message does not affirm the lordship of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, which is to say Jesus is God, it's, it's false. And that's, that's one very simple test. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, uh, no one speaking by the Spirit can say Jesus is accursed. And the only one who can say Jesus is Lord is somebody who is in, in tune with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a theological test. Does it affirm Jesus as Lord? Also, does it affirm Jesus as coming in the flesh? If you go to 1 John chapter 4, you find something very similar to this idea of testing. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not come uh, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And so... Is Jesus Lord? Is that what the message is saying? Is Jesus fully human? Is that what the message is saying? That those are in agreement with, uh, with the teaching of Scripture. Another thing, another test is, does this instruction encourage? Does it teach and does it encourage? Uh, as I said, oftentimes we think about prophecy as predicting, but actually it, it, the, the idea of prophecy is more focused, it sometimes does that, but more focused on on uh, instruction and encouragement. For example, in Acts chapter 15, uh, it says, uh, Acts 15, 32, it says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So what do prophets do? Well, in the New Testament, they strengthened and they encouraged. Um, you find the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, which was the church that was having so much trouble with unruly prophets uh, in chapter 14, verses 30, uh, 31. It says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be <laughs> encouraged. Okay, there's another test. Does this teach, does it instruct, and does it encourage? An, uh, uh, another test is, is it under control? Is it peaceful and under control? First Corinthians as well. 
1432, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the final one comes from the lips of Jesus. Is it backed up by fruitful, faithful Christian living? Jesus said, many prophets are going to come, but you will know them by their fruits, by the way they live their lives. So it has to be backed up by fruitful Christian living. Okay, those are a number of tests. That one, two, three, four, five, six, seven tests. Let's apply them. Here's some, here's some contact that I have had, and we find in the New Testament, or I have had in my experience, with people who have come and said, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll see how it applies some of these tests. This is in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, we'll find that there were those in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. It says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it looks like some had gone in to the Thessalonian church and said, you missed it, folks. The day of the Lord has come and you missed it. And they were, some were being shaken by that. Okay, how can we apply some of these tests? How do we know that that's something that we should reject? Well, we need to know scripture well enough to know that when the Lord comes, we are not going to miss it. That, that, that Jesus said that this was going to be uh, something that the whole world would be testify, uh, witnesses of. And so, so if we know scripture, then we can say, we didn't miss anything. Uh, you're a false prophet. You're teaching something that is false. Also in scripture, we have a man named Agabus. He shows up twice. Agabus shows up twice in Acts. And the first time he shows up uh, in Acts chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, it says, One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then in parentheses, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judah. So how do we know that what kind of test can we apply to Agabus saying there's a famine coming? What's the parenthetical statement say? It happened. It happened. And so there's a check. It happened. And, and so they acted upon that. Now, interestingly, this Agabus shows up another time, and he says that Paul is going to be arrested, and he is going to be bound in Jerusalem. And uh, it's interesting, the reaction of Paul. In Acts chapter 21, he shows up again. And uh, let's see, Acts 21, verses 11 and 12. And it says, and coming to us, so verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming to us. He took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. And And then it's interesting to see how Paul reacted to that. He didn't do anything. He just went to Jerusalem. And everybody else was saying, Paul, don't go, don't go. And it wasn't that he said something that was false, but Paul felt free to say, okay, thank you for that information. I already know this is coming, and I'm going to keep on my, my track anyway. Uh, and it did happen. So this Agabus is, is, as far as we know, he's two for two. So he is predicted twice, and it's come true. Well, there's another man, more recently, uh, Efrain Rodriguez. He predicted that there would be a major meteor strike west of Puerto Rico during September 21st to 28th, 2015. Do you remember that major meteor strike that happened then? No? 
Yeah, yeah, we missed it, right. But, but, I, but I mention this because I had a friend who got obsessed with this. He was obsessed. He could talk about almost nothing else. And he, 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 was, he was really obsessed with this, this coming prophecy. And uh, how do we know that this prophecy is false? What, what test can we apply to it? It didn't happen. It didn't happen, right. Um, in, in, a, in a less dramatic way, I was at my church down in Guadalajara, and there was a woman who was uh, in a difficult situation in her marriage, or at least that's how she described it, and she said she was going to get a divorce, and I began to ask her about, about the, the relationship, and there was no biblical ground for divorce, uh, and so, but she said, no, but God has told me that it's okay for me to divorce my husband. Now, what should I say to her as a pastor? Doesn't agree with scripture, right? It doesn't agree with scripture. So somebody might have told you that, but it wasn't God because it, it doesn't agree with scripture. Um, another another example. I was at a, a church uh, in Philadelphia, and a man, who gosh, if anybody looks like a prophet, this guy looked like a prophet. I mean, he had this this mane of white hair and this big white beard, and he kind of had a faraway look in his eyes. And he came up to me and he said, "I, I have a word I want to give to you." And I, I'm not sure he got the right guy because he's told me, I saw you in the balcony earlier. I hadn't been in the balcony, so I might have gotten, I might have gotten somebody else's prophecy. But then he began, and it was, a little, it was awkward for me because he began to speak in first person as if God were speaking directly to me. And he went on and gave me a series of beautiful, scriptural, encouraging ideas. And so how should I respond to that? I said, amen, thank you very much, brother. Because it was in agreement with scripture. And it was in, in line with the, the, the intent to, to instruct and to encourage. And so I thanked him very much for that word that he had given to me. I was in the middle of a, uh, I was in a, a large church in Orlando. And it was a church uh, of a denomination where, where Prophecy is encouraged in, in, in public. But in the middle of the preacher's sermon, a man stood up in the balcony, and we happened to be in the balcony, and he had placed himself so that he could be right in the middle of all the action. He interrupted the, the, uh, the pastor, and he began to, to shout a word. Uh, what, how, should we, how should we respond to that? Well, it, it, it's not peaceful. It's not in order. And so the pastor actually told him to sit down and to be quiet. Uh, right down the street from us in Miami, the, the largest uh, Hispanic church in the United States, um, the, the founding pastor, who calls himself an apostle, uh, and his wife, who calls herself a prophet, uh, she is uh, a couple years ago sued for divorce and a piece of the $120 million estate that they have amassed uh, through their ministry. Now, uh, he's continuing his ministry, and I don't know what she's doing, but, but what, uh, what kind of tests can we apply to that situation? He calls himself apostle. She calls herself prophet. Uh, what kind of tests can we apply? Not fruitful Christian living, the way they're living their lives, in, in, in their marriage at least. And so here, here's some test cases that we can take these, these principles from Scripture and apply them to any word that purports to be a word from the Lord. Those are just some examples. That's the second situation. So we have speaking, we have listening, listening critically, listening, uh, testing 
holding fast what is good, abstaining from every form of evil. And then we have the final blessing prayer in verses 23 to 28. And it's interesting what we have here. We have a summary of two of the biggest concerns in this letter. So if you haven't been here for the series, you can get caught up today because two of the biggest concerns are these. Sanctification, that is growth and holiness, and a comfort in light of the fact that the Lord is coming back. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's the, the first major concern that we saw in this letter. And then may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the, this is a summary of the, the letter. So what we've talked about in this letter, may God do this for you. May he sanctify you completely, and may you be kept blameless completely, spirit, soul, body, your whole self, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they add, and this is very comforting, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. He will do what? He will sanctify you completely. Some days it doesn't feel like that, does it? Sometimes it feels like we've taken a few steps backwards, but he will do it. He's faithful. He will sanctify you completely, and he will make you blameless on the day of Jesus. He is preparing you for that day. He will bring it to pass. So don't despair. He is faithful. He will make it happen. And then we have three final instructions. How, what can we do? So he will do that, but in the meantime, how do we act? Well, here are three uh, three instructions that are basic means by which Christians grow and the church grows. Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. There we have it once again, pray for us. And who's the us? Missionaries. You've noticed that we pray for missionaries in our church. We need to pray for our missionaries. Pray for us. These, these are the missionaries saying, now pray for us. We need your prayers. So pray for the extension of the gospel. And then verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, uh, that's customary in, in many cultures, not so customary in ours, perhaps, especially after COVID, we're all trying to figure out how do, I, how do we greet each other, and, and that's, that, that, that fear is, is, is dissipating, thankfully. Uh, but it's not so much the, the idea here of, of how you go about greeting each other, but that you can greet each other. And what does that assume? That you're in good relationships with other people. You, you know the, the awkward experience of greeting somebody intimately, and yet it's a formality because the relationship's not good. That's really awkward. And in, in cultures where, where there is the hug and there is the kiss, but there's, there's not always tight relationships, it's very awkward to do that. So, so getting behind this, what's it saying? Be on good terms with everybody. Love everybody. Keep short accounts with everybody. Make sure that you can greet everybody in the church. Make sure that there's nobody in the church that you would rather sit on the opposite side from and avoid greeting. Make sure that you can greet everybody with kindness and with affection. So pray and pray for your missionaries. Greet each other affectionately because your, your relationships are intact. And the third one is read God's word. Read God's word. How many times have I, you heard me say, read the Bible? Christians, read the Bible. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
Now, did the authors know that their letter was going to get into the New Testament? I, I don't know how much they could contemplate, but notice they're putting the church under oath to read this letter as an authoritative word from the Lord. So they, they understood that much. If they understood how it was going to be compiled or not, I do not know. But what are they saying? Read the, the words that we know come from the Lord. So pray, be on good terms with each other, and also read God's word. And then we have the final conclusion, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so what do we have, as is typical of, of letters in which Paul participated, and he was the primary author here, he ends where he began. If you go back to verse 1, chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, uh, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It starts with grace and peace, and then it ends with peace and grace. Grace to you in peace. And then in verse 23 of the last chapter, now may the peace himself, the peace of the God of peace himself sanctify you. And then verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he enters grace and peace and he exit peace and grace. And that's really appropriate, isn't it? To start with grace and end with grace. Why? Because that's how the Christian life works. It's appropriate that this letter begins with grace and ends with grace. And it's got grace all in the middle of it because that's how the Christian life operates. How do we enter into the Christian life? We enter into the Christian life by grace through faith. That's how we start the Christian life, by, by the grace of God, the favor of God towards sinners. And, and, and receiving that favor of God towards sinners expressed in Jesus Christ by, by faith in Jesus. That's how we get started. How are we sustained through the Christian life? Well, we said, we saw it today. It said, he's faithful. He will do it. He will be gracious to you the whole time. Until when? Until the end, until the coming of Jesus. You start with grace, you continue with grace, and you end with grace. It's all about God's grace. So what do we do? Do we sit on our hands in the meantime and say, God will do it all? No, by God's grace, what do we do? We practice rejoicing. We practice praying together. We, we practice the habit of giving thanks. We pray. We greet each other with a real affection in our hearts. And we read God's word. And when a word comes to us purporting to be from the Lord, we test it. And we hold on tenaciously to what's good about it. And we reject what's not. That's what we do in the meantime. And so what happens? Well, that prayer gets fulfilled. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. That's what he will do because he is faithful, because he is gracious, and he's given us the means to walk in his grace so that we're sanctified completely unto that day of Christ when we will be presented blameless before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for instructions about how to live. Attitudes we should have, actions in which we should engage. Lord, we should be more joyful than we are. We have every reason to be more joyful than we are. Lord, we're not as joyful as you yet want us to be. Help us to rejoice always 
And as we gather together, that, that we would joy together, rejoice together, and come out of this place with, with a greater level of joy than we, we entered in. Help us to sustain prayer in our church. Help us to, to develop the practice of giving thanks. Help us to give attention to your word so that any word that comes to us purporting to be from you, we would be able to examine it, to test it, to hold on to what's good, and to abstain from everything in it that's not. And Lord, we trust you because you're faithful. You will surely do it, and you will sanctify us completely. You will keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and in the meantime, sanctify your church, sanctify us, so that we might be a glory to Christ now and on that great day. Amen.